Hi, everyone. Welcome to BYOB, the Bring Your Own Book Podcast. I'm Tilly. I'm Nikki. And I'm Kelly. This week, we're talking about The Poppy War by R.F. Kuang, a historical fantasy novel which was published in 2018. Just a quick heads up that this book deals with many difficult subjects and is really intense, including war, genocide, sexual assault, self-harm, and graphic violence. So take care of yourselves if you're not ready to hear about any of that. Here's the publisher's synopsis from Kelly. When Rin aced the Keju, the empire-wide test to find the most talented youth to learn at the academies, it was a shock to everyone, to the test officials who couldn't believe a war orphan from Rooster Province could pass without cheating, to Rin's guardians who believed they'd finally be able to marry her off and further their criminal enterprise, and to Rin herself, who realized she was finally free of the servitude and despair that had made up her daily existence. That she got into Sinigard, the most elite military school in Nikon, was even more surprising. But surprises aren't always good. Because being a dark-skinned peasant girl from the south is not an easy thing at Sinigard. Targeted from the outset by rival classmates for her color, poverty, and gender, Rin discovers she possesses a lethal, unearthly power, an aptitude for the nearly mythical art of shamanism. Exploring the depths of her gift with the help of a seemingly insane teacher and psychoactive substances, Rin learns that gods long thought dead are very much alive, and that mastering control over those powers could mean more than just surviving school. For while the Nikara Empire is at peace, the Federation of Mugen still lurks across a narrow sea. The militarily advanced Federation occupied Nikon for decades after the First Poppy War, and only barely lost the continent in the Second. And while most of the people are complacent to go about their lives, a few are aware that a third poppy war is just a spark away. Rin's shamanic powers may be the only way to save her people, but as she finds out more about the god that has chosen her, the vengeful phoenix, she fears that winning the war may cost her humanity, and that it may already be too late. Wow. So intense. <laughs> Alright, so Nikki, would you like to introduce the drink we've chosen? Yes, the drink we've chosen to pair with this episode is called a poppy cocktail. It features gin, pomegranate juice, citrus vodka, and a splash of lemon-lime soda. We felt it was fitting, given as pomegranates are ancient fruits, and given the importance of poppies and poppy seeds in the story, pomegranates are the closest thing we can put in a drink. Great, uh, so let's all take a little sip of this delicious-looking drink. Ready? Cheers! Cheers! <laughs> Mmm. Oh, I'm a gin gal, so I'm really into this. I like gin, but I hate pomegranates, so. Oh, oh no, Ew. I didn't realize that. Well, I, I thought really it wouldn't it be so that bad because it was, like, mixed in with other stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm not about it. It's fine, though. <laughs> oh, I like well, I one. like it. Me too. <laughs> well, why don't we get into our star ratings so like we say in every episode, we do give the, each book a rating out of five stars, simply because it gives us some sort of framework to talk about how much we enjoyed the book. So we all have our different reasonings, and we'll talk about them as we go along. So um, I can start if you like, since I'm, I think, the only one who has read the book before. Sure. Yeah, so this is my second time reading this book. I read it for the first time in 2018, and I liked it a lot then, and I even loved it more during this reread. I found it was even richer this time because there are so many dense 
world building details and like historical information that is not necessarily familiar to me. Um, I found it took a second read to really get all of that kind of in my brain. And so the first time I read it, I think it was like a four out of five and I could really appreciate it. But then this time I, I upped it to a five out of five because I just think there's so much there. Um, the author is an expert or is studying uh, modern Chinese history. And so I really find that there's so much drawn from from that history and it's really, really great to read. Um, it's a really fun well, I don't know about fun because it's <laughs> dark and intense, but I enjoy the characters. I enjoy the dialogue. And I think the author has a really great style of having all these intense details kind of in the narrative. But then when it comes to dialogue, the characters still feel really grounded and modern. And so they swear and they like kind of explain things and they don't know everything all the time. And I don't know, it's just a really great um, balance between the two. So I really love the book. Five out of five from me. Awesome. What about Kelly? I was so excited to read this book, and I'm so glad that I did. I gave it a five out of five. This is a wow. book that, yeah, this is the type of book that I would be so interested to read but scared to start. So mm. I'm really glad that we picked this for the podcast because it forced me to start reading it. Um, mm -hmm. Because I don't read a lot of books like this where, like, you know, it is much more complex, nuanced, uh, very, very graphic and bloody. Yes. Which, mm -hmm. you know, we'll get into that. But I keep saying, like, I want to get into high fantasy, but I'm kind of scared because I don't know how to dive in. Wow. This book, like, so detailed, so rich. The characters were so well thought out. The world was so well thought out. Yeah. And because we know that the author's background is studying the Chinese history and philo um, philosophies. Because I, mm -hmm. I, I read her bio, and I think it said she has like a master's in philosophy and in science, and it's all related mm -hmm. to things that are spoken about in this book, or at least a large, a large part of what she studies is, you know, kind of source material for this, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And I just thought it was so well done, so well thought out. And because that's her background, I was like so interested to see how much of this is historically accurate and how much of it is like this fantastical kind of reimagining. Because obviously there's things that I'm like, okay, clearly this didn't happen, like some of the more magical aspects. But there's some awful things that happen in this book that you really have to wonder like, wow, how did this happen in the world? You know, like, this is so awful. It, you know, probably did happen, which is so heartbreaking, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just, I thought it was an epic journey. I loved it. I loved the pacing. I loved all the reveals. I just, mm -hmm. oh, I need a break after this book. Like, I need to read something light. It's a lot. With, like, yeah. no detail. <laughs> because I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> five out of five. Loved it. Can't wait to keep reading it. Or the next book, I mean, but yeah. <laughs> Great. Oh, I'm so glad to hear. What about Nikki? So I gave this book a four out of five. I think if I would have read it and had more time with it, I probably would have given it a five. Um, I typically really don't like books about war just mm. because I find them boring. I'm not a huge person for like action fighting in books. I don't know what it is, but 
this book transported me into this world immediately. I was so happy to be listening to it. And the first part, I think, was my favorite, her doing the kaju and then going to Synagogue and being in the school. I loved all of that kind of training aspect. I love the um, relationship that she built with her uh, mentor and everything. But I, even going into the second part and hearing about the actual war that was going on, I didn't lose that feeling of being excited about anything, which was really nice. I was really skeptical going into this book because I was really worried about if I was going to like any of it, Mm. purely based on the title, The Poppy War. And I was like, oh, this book is all about war. And I really hate reading about that. So (laughs) I'm really pleasantly surprised. I wasn't really sure what the time period was going in, if this was a modern setting or if it was in the past. But all of the dialogue was pretty modern. They say things that anybody would say uh, today. But the nice thing, I think, for me is knowing what I do about um, Chinese culture, that when they talk about outfits and stuff like that, I wasn't, like, thrown off about any of that. Because I find in a lot of books written Mm. by American authors or, like, Western authors, when they don't get the time period exactly right – it really throws everything off. But because there's so much of modern Chinese culture or Korean culture or Japanese culture that's so rooted in um, their past, I felt like that was so much more realistic and believable. And it really added to the story to hear what the uniforms were like at the school or Mm -hmm. different things that they were wearing when they were fighting and everything like that. Because They are older, more traditional things to wear. Mm. But because of the setting of the book, I was like, yes, that makes total sense. And I loved it. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I agree. I felt it was really um, accessible in its familiarity. So obviously, it the book is fantasy, but draws upon a kind of history of 20th century China. Mm-hmm. And so there's a bit of familiarity there. I'm not super familiar with uh, Chinese history, but I've read um, some other books by authors that kind of delve into the same subject matter. So I felt like not totally lost. Like I felt like I had a bit of a framework. And yeah, I thought it was it was so well done. I actually saw an article where the author described her motivation for writing this series. And uh, she says she wanted to write a book about what if Mao was a teenage girl? Yes, yes. (laughs) Because Rin is so, like, ruthless, but she's sympathetic and she's really ambitious and powerful and has, like, a huge drive to succeed, but also her, like, moral compass is really off. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really a a powerful way of looking at the series because she's not really like a compassionate character. Like she's not like somebody that like, oh yeah, I relate to her or I know somebody like her. She's kind of her own person and she makes her own choices and disregards other people's warnings. And that makes her a really compelling character. Mm-hmm. I also want to say that um, RF Kuang actually immigrated to the US from China in 2000. So I just think you can really see that even though this is a very dark 
fantasy novel. There's so much love for her culture and her heritage in this book. And at the very Mm -hmm. end, when I was reading her author's note or acknowledgements, she ended it with immigrants. We get the job done. Oh, I know. I saw that too. (laughs) It made me love her even more. My heart. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I just, wow. (laughs) This book took me on a journey. A scary journey, but a great journey. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. I, I think I was too excited reading the book to be really scared about anything that was going on because I was just so happy to be like going on this journey. Um, I listened to the audiobook and the narrator was amazing. Oh, there were times where I was like, is this a full cast? Because oh, the wow. voices that she did for each character were insanely different and you knew each time she spoke with a different voice exactly who was talking oh, wow. and without them without her having to say rin said or jong said or anything like that you just knew and it was that helped a lot with the world building for me mm. so i mean if you guys want to read it a second or third time i would definitely suggest listening to the audiobook or listening to the audiobook for the remaining books if it's the same narrator because wow it was amazing i don't usually like listening to audiobooks for fiction but she was so good even listening at two times speed it was good oh my gosh (laughs) see i would love to listen and read at the same time because i feel like there's so many Mm. details but i would love to hear the voices and also just to know how to pronounce things because sometimes <laughs> I was doing it yeah. wrong. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, wow. I'm glad that she was really good because that would be so unfortunate. <laughs> I know. Listen to an 18 hour audiobook with yeah, somebody who's a- like super bland. <laughs> it's a long book and um, I think it's like 500 and some pages, but I find it it paced really well and I actually when I was doing the outline for this episode I didn't have any problems writing the uh the spoiler uh section because I felt like I understood the story so well Mm -hmm. because I think the author is just incredibly skilled at communicating um what is going on Mm -hmm. and that really stood out to me like I didn't have to go back to any other references or even flip back in the book because it was all very like clear in my mind part of that is because I've read it twice now but um, I just thought that was really amazing. I remember when I, I read it for the first time, I remember thinking, oh, I know what kind of book this is because it's such a distinct divide between the two parts, right? There's Ren at Synagard and Learning. And I was like, oh, it's like a magic school book. That's so great. I love that stuff. And then it like took a sharp turn into <laughs> wartime territory. And I was like, uh-oh, now everyone's uh, really upset and bloody and everyone's fighting and I'm upset. But I was better prepared for it this time around. And so it wasn't as jarring. <laughs> Yeah, Tilly warned me not to get too invested in characters because they will probably die. And I was just on the edge of my seat the whole time, like, oh, no, who's going to die? Who's going to die? And there were definitely some people who we'll talk about where I was like, I'm still right now. I'm like, I don't believe that they're gone. They're going to come back. That's what I felt, too. (laughs) I I definitely believed it the first time I read it. But when I was reading this time, I was really paying attention. I was like, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. They don't actually see that they saw this person's breath leave their body. There's still a chance. Yes, I know. And Thank God. Well, real world (laughs) Kelly's like, Kelly, you need to like, you need to just get on with it and grieve. And I'm like, no, it's not real. (laughs) 
My mom used to have to say that to me all the time as a kid because I would be so emotionally devastated when I would read a book where a character would die. I would cry for days and she'd be like, Tilly, you know, they're not real characters. I'm like, but they're real to me. Like, they're real in my mind. Yeah, the problems of a bookworm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Oh my God. I don't normally have that, but I definitely have like, wow, I'm in love with this character. I wish they were real. Yeah, I yes, definitely yeah. get like major book withdrawal where for a few days yeah. I'll feel like, does the real world even really matter? Can't I just I know, it's be like a hangover book forever? Yeah, it's but it's worse than a hangover because it lasts way longer and it's emotional. Yeah. When you're it's hangover, so you just throw up and it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Is it? <laughs> well, for me. I know exactly. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean about the, the like the book withdrawal that was so real. I, I feel like when I finish a book, I have to close it and then like not read another book for a whole day. Like I have to just like think about it and I have to just let it let it pass through my body and then it's done. Oh God. Well, I was saying just before we started recording, I just watched In the Heights last night and then mm. I read I finished reading this book. And so I've had two really like emotional roller coaster like Yeah. Oh my god. I'm just like, wow. Like, my brain and my heart are exhausted, but in the best way. Like, wow. <laughs> I need a break. I'm so glad you two liked this book. I wasn't sure. I think I'm just, like, second-guessing myself because there have been books we've read for this podcast that I've really liked that you two haven't, or, like, vice versa. And so I'm just like, I don't know what they like anymore. I don't even know. Is this good? Am I good? I don't know. <laughs> I loved it. And I'm the same Yay. way, Nikki. I don't normally like war books. I don't watch a lot of war movies because I'm like, it's just depressing. And I'm like, it's long. It's just people dying left, right, and center. Like, I get it. But no, this was wow. <laughs> this yeah. It's fantastic. It's so good. Well, should we do some book recommendations? Mm-hmm. Yes, let's do it. All right, great. Well, I'll go first. So my first recommendation is one of my all-time favorite fantasy novels, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Mm. Um, It is also set in a school with a protagonist learning about all these new kind of alchemical and magical abilities. And it's also uh, in a war-ridden land with all these supernatural creatures and like eccentric teachers. Like there's a teacher in The Name of the Wind that is almost exactly the same as uh, the lore master Zhang in this book. So much so that I was like, do they do they read each other's work? Like it, this feels like the same character almost, um, which is really great. So I would really recommend the Name of the Wind, uh, the second book, A Wise Man's Fear. The second book is also really excellent, and it's a similar sort of style of writing where it's really really accessible. So even though you're taking in a lot of information, it's from an extremely skilled writer who I always feel like Patrick Rothfuss is like taking care of me as I'm <laughs> reading. Like he knows exactly what I need explaining and what I don't need explaining, and I just I love that series. So I would oh. recommend that for sure. Great, I've heard a lot about that. So interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. cool, cool. Okay, my first recommendation is quite different than The Poppy War, but it makes sense. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> so I chose for the first recommendation a nonfiction self-help book called oh. Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life, Living the Wisdom of the Tao by Dr. Wayne W. Dyer. So mm. I picked this book. I have not read the whole thing, um, but I picked it because it is focusing on the same philosophical Um, teachings and practices that they touch upon in the poppy war Mm. so talking about like um key and oh oh, oh my gosh i hope i say this right lao tzu 
I believe. So basically this book is Dr. Wayne W. Dyer's translations and essays talking about Lao Tzu's um, Tao, basically. So he has a bunch of different essays in this book that have all 81 verses of the Tao. And it talks about like how to live in the now. It talks a lot about like the universe and just, yeah. So I just, when I was reading the parts with Rin and her master Zhang, and he was talking to her about like how to control her abilities and like what is the here and now and like all that fun stuff in the cave. I was like, oh my God, I have read some of these things in this book. Like, yeah. So if you want to know more about the philosophical teachings in the poppy war i would really recommend change your thoughts change your life living the wisdom of the Tao. Hmm. cool awesome the book that i'm gonna recommend is a little bit of a mm, i like a wild card because i literally just started it but <laughs> the vibe is so similar and that is Senlin Ascends by Josiah Bancroft. Mm. So because I've only just started it, I'm going to read a little bit from the synopsis. But basically, it follows this headmaster whose name is Thomas Senlin. He gets married and him and his bride go to the Tower of Babel on their honeymoon. Mm. So he loses her in the tower and then he must go into the tower, which is a world of geniuses and tyrants luxury and menace of unusual animals and mysterious machines he must endure betrayal assassination attempts and the illusions of the tower and if he ever hopes to see his wife again he'll have to do more than just survive this quiet man of letters must become a man of action <gasps> so oh. it really gives me the exact same feelings as when they are in the chulu korik at the mm -hmm. end of uh, the Poppy War. I feel all of those things coming together in this book. So that's going to be my recommendation. Hopefully it lives up to the hype I've uh, drawn it out to be in my mind. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. So my second recommendation is actually a historical fiction novel. Uh, it's called Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeleine Thieu, which is set in China during Mao's Cultural Revolution, and it follows two generations of an extended family. So this one really came to mind for me when I was reading kind of about the politics in the Poppy War and just about the kind of like bloody history and all the fighting and the infighting. And there were a lot of similar themes explored in this book, such as um, generational trauma and the effects of war. And of course, there's quite a similar kind of cultural setting as well. Um, that one, I have a lot of memories of being like really depressed during, though, because it's quite upsetting. Um, there's a lot of really graphic scenes depicting the situation at Tiananmen Square and that sort of stuff. So it is pretty intense, but so is the Poppy War. So if you like that, you might want to check out this book, Do Not Say We Have Nothing. Ooh. Oh my God, that sounds really intense. <laughs> it's very intense. It took me a long time to read because it was like difficult, but important. Yeah. And I'm glad I read it. Mm-hmm. Well, on a similar note, my second and last recommendation is actually a novella called Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. So mm. I read this recently and it was fantastic. It is a sci-fi horror historical fiction. And 
I picked this as a recommendation because it touches on some similar themes as the Poppy War. We deal with racism, oppression, bloody history. The part in the book that really made me think of Ring Shout was she, I think Rin was like high at the time, probably. Like I think she had some poppy seeds and she was like hearing or seeing like ancestors and their stories Mm -hmm. and their feelings in right. Ring Shout, the main character has a sword that comes to life whenever she calls it. And it's the whispers and screams of all of, like, the slave traders and slaves and, like, all of the ancestors who, like, want her to help them enact their revenge. And it mm. was just, like, so well done. It's only, like, I think it's, like, 180 pages. It's super short, but so wow. well thought out so complex so vivid so i would really recommend ring shout if you liked the poppy war great thank you i that's been on my list for a while now it's I really so read good it. so good <laughs> okay so my final book recommendation is a little bit lighter it's actually been one of my <laughs> favorite childhood fantasy authors Uh, And this is a newer book that I think was just published in the last few years. It's called Tempests and Slaughter by Tamora Pierce. Uh, So it is a fantasy book as well. And it's also set in a school for magic and following one of the characters who was a mage from previous series of hers. So Tamora Pierce explores uh, this one world in many of her series called Tortal. And one of my favorite characters from the Tortal books that I grew up as a kid reading, she's actually written a spinoff series about his youth. And so it's reading about him going to school and learning how to be a mage, and also learning about calling the gods and uh, serving in kind of a wartime medical facility. And I think there's like gladiators. And I remember being a little more intense than I was expecting because it's not like a childhood fantasy novel. It's it's more adult. But uh, I do feel that if you're looking for something that's like midway between a young fantasy novel and a really intense fantasy novel like Poppy War, maybe Tempest and Slaughter would be a good uh, book for you. So that's my final recommendation. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. We're moving into spoilers territory now, so if you haven't read the book and don't want to know how it all turns out, you should probably stop listening now. And if you like what you're hearing, feel free to leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. So if you don't want any spoilers, you should leave now. Okay, so we'll begin with a quick recap of the rest of the book so we're all on the same page. And I will say it's not a very quick recap because this is a 500 plus page book. So I did what I could, but let's go. (laughs) Okay, so as we know from the synopsis, the story follows Fong Runin, who goes by her nickname Rin, a young peasant girl from a rural village in a southern province of the fantasy country Nikon. In this world, which reads as a fantasy version of 20th century China, the Empire of Nikon is made up of 12 provinces, each governed by their own warlord, with an empress presiding over all. Having been through two bloody poppy wars in the past, Nikon is now in a state of tenuous peace with their old enemies, the island federation of Mugen. The book begins with 14-year-old Rin's determination to pass the Kaju, a nationwide test which serves as an entrance exam to get into the most prestigious schools. As a poor shop girl in her hometown of Takani, Rin does not have the opportunities of other Kaju students who have spent their lives studying for the exam. But she does have a powerful motivation to get away from her hometown. Rin is a war orphan, adopted by cruel opium smugglers who intended to sell her off 
into marriage to a man three times her age. Rin realizes her only option is to test into the highest percentile and get into Sinigard, the acclaimed military school famed for training generals. Getting into Sinigard is essentially a summons to the capital, and their tuition is free. While she is years behind most other students, Rin convinces the kind tutor Feyrik to help her study, and works herself to the bone over the next few years, memorizing texts and studying every waking moment, even dripping hot candle wax on her arms to wake her up when she falls asleep over the books. Rin's extreme methods ultimately pay off as she gets into Sinigard and heads to the capital with tutor Feyrik. Once there, she meets an obnoxious student named Neja, who makes fun of Rin's dark skin and rural accent and mannerisms. He also mocks her tutor, which is the last straw for Rin, and she punches him in the face. Boom! Yeah. Neja is enraged and does his best to make her life a living hell during her time at Sinigard. Luckily, Rin also makes a friend, the genius young student, Kitai. The class structure at Sinigard involves a grueling first year meant to weed out the weaker students, culminating in the trials which test all their capabilities. Based on their performances in the trials, the class masters can bid for students to pledge to their studies. Any student with no bids is asked to leave the school. After another skirmish with Neja, Rin gets off on the wrong foot with combat master June and gets unceremoniously kicked out of his class, and Rin fears that this will ruin any chance she has of succeeding in the trials. No one wants a military student who cannot fight. Desperate, Rin tries to learn how to fight from library books. After observing her disastrous technique in a garden classroom, the elusive and eccentric lore master Jiang soon takes her under his wing, offering to teach her combat in defiance of Master Jun. Rin is skeptical as Jiang seems to be the laughingstock of the academy, skipping the classes he teaches and mocking the other masters, and no one has pledged lore in years. However, she doesn't have much choice, so though Rin is hoping to pledge strategy with Master Irja, she goes along with Master Jiang's teachings in the hopes that she can succeed in the trials. Though there are strange tasks at first, such as carrying a pig up and down the mountain every day, Rin soon gains strength and endurance along with traditional martial arts techniques. Meanwhile, all the first years are regaled with stories of the Academy's star pupil, Alton Trangzin, who also happens to be the last survivor of the island nation Spear, whose people were massacred in the last Poppy War. Spearlies are infamous for their red irises and fabled combat skills, and upon watching Alton fight in an after-hours student fighting match, Rin finds herself as obsessed with him as everyone else at the Academy. Me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When the trials finally arrive, Rin is ready. Though she has not been sparring her classmates in combat class, she has become a skilled fighter under Master Jung's unusual tutelage, learning more efficient techniques that were long forgotten. She sweeps the competition, and in her final fight, she is pitted against her nemesis, Neja, who has become the strongest fighter in their year. During their match, as they taunt each other, Rin feels so much hatred that she starts to see red, and she is overcome with a burning sensation which does not end when she beats Neja. Alarmed by her state, she races out of the room to find Master Jiang, who takes one look at her and places a cool hand on her forehead, putting out the flames within. When Rin awakens, Master Jiang is there, saying that he knows what happened to her, and that if she pledges lore, he can help tame it. Rin is frightened by the sensation that overtook her body, and when she finds out that both Strategy Master Irja and Master Jiang put in bids for her, she chooses to pledge lore. 
Several years then go by with Rin learning more and more about the mysterious subject she has dedicated herself to. It turns out that lore is the ancient study of shamanism and that Rin has shown an aptitude for channeling the gods. Through Zhang's teaching, Rin begins to learn how to control the anger inside of her, though she feels a strange calling to destruction and fire. Zhang is a cautious man, and he preaches caution to her, denying her the hallucinogenic substances that would help open her mind to the will of the gods. Meanwhile, tensions are rising between the Federation of Mugen and Yukon, and we see a scene from a different narrator, Tyr, a shaman of the mysterious Psyche, which seems to point to the Empress Sudajid betraying her country to the Muganese. As Rin learns more about the pantheon of gods and the immense power they can grant, she grows resentful towards Jung and all his attempts to calm her ambition. War soon comes to Sinigard's doorstep, and the students are scattered. Rin and Neja find themselves cornered in the ruins of the city by an enormous Muganese general and his militia, and they are weaponless and powerless to defend the city. Just as all hope seems lost, Jiang appears out of nowhere and fights the general, ripping open a void in time and space as he does so. Rin and Neja are blasted backwards, and Jiang disappears, but the general survived under the rubble. The general finds Neja and stabs him repeatedly, and Rin desperately swallows some stolen poppy seeds and soars to the pantheon, begging the powerful beings for help. She makes a terrible bargain and suddenly feels a blazing within herself, unleashing an incredible amount of power and passing out. Rin wakes to Master Irja, who tells her that he thought Alton Trangzen was the last Spearly, but that Rin herself appears to be one as well. Only Spearleys can call down their deity, the destructive phoenix, and produce flames. He tells her that she leveled an entire sector of the city. Unsure what to do with her, the masters assign her to the strange 13th division of the militia, known as the Psyche. Rin knows little about them, but she soon meets her commander, none other than the famous Alton Trangzen. A whole lot of other wild stuff happens, including a siege on a small holding town, more truths uncovered about the historical events of the last Poppy War, new colorful characters who fight alongside Rin in the psych, Rin learning more about Alton and the powers available to a shaman, a terrible betrayal and massacre of the war capital Golanese, an escape from an experimental lab run by the Muganese studying the Spearleys, and Rin's eventual discovery of the existence of Chulu Kurik, a mountain fortress which imprisons those members of the psyche driven mad by the possession of their gods. In the end, after being betrayed by the Empress and captured by Muganese soldiers, Rin and Alton make a daring escape to the dead island of Spear, as that is the only place they will be able to awake the full power of the phoenix. Alton sacrifices himself so that Rin can swim across unseen, lighting himself on fire and taking out the troops with him. Once at Spear, Rin discovers an underground temple and is able to connect to the phoenix, ignoring all the warnings from her old master Jiang. She asks for the power to destroy Mugen, and the phoenix grants it. A great fire consumes the island of Mugen, and with a terrible price, the war is won. Upon her return to the psyche, Rin meets up with Kitai, who survived the siege in Golan Nice. He is horrified at what she has done, but Rin feels she has done the right thing. Finally, Rin swears a bloody revenge on the Empress, and the Psyche sail on to war once again. Wow, what a what a true roller coaster of a book. Honestly, what Honestly. a ride. <laughs> I know, I kept thinking to myself, like, 
could this book have been a little shorter or like two books? But then I'm like, no, because even though so much happened, none of it was filler. I think I'm just used to like reading books that don't have so much happen, but this was fantastic. (laughs) Like, yeah. Well, the author did a great job at making everything seem just as important as everything else Mm -hmm. because this book had so many opportunities to fall flat and be like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. Yeah. And it was like stakes, stakes, stakes all the time. Yeah. Can you believe this was her debut novel? No. No. It's like, can you imagine? (laughs) No, I can't. (laughs) The talent. Yeah. the, The ambition. Yeah. And let me just say, this might be a hot take. Who cares? Because whatever. <laughs> but Sarah J. Mass fans, I'm sorry, y'all. But, you know, people are like, can you believe that she wrote Throne of Glass when she was 16? Like, good for her. Yeah, okay, good for her. However, she's like huge now. I read but, like, Throne of Glass. It was I not can believe good. it because yeah. the book wasn't good. Exactly. Yeah, it was not very good. <laughs> this was her debut novel, The Poppy War. It is phenomenal. And she came in. She knew exactly what she was doing. Yes. Granted, was she 16? No. But I'm just saying, you know, like, there's a different standard <laughs> for white people, you know, <laughs> where it's like, that yeah. book was not that great, people. This book was fantastic. Like, holy crap. Just saying. That's my hot take. Don't come at me. But I'm also like, whatever. Who cares? I'm right. Okay? I agree with your hot take. Maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah. cancel us all if it's a hot take. <laughs> Honestly, God. But okay, I have a question because this yeah. is something that really uh, popped up for me during this reading. I think in the first reading of the book, I was like, oh, okay, I understand. And, you know, I'm going to go along with it. But this one, I really have some questions about, do you think Rin is actually a Spearly? Because oh. someone just tells her that she is, but then Katai says, but your eyes aren't red. I thought Spearly's eyes were red. Alton's are red. And I think what happens is that uh, I think Rin's eyes go red, like, in the fighting match with Neja. Mm-hmm. So when she's, like, overcome with bloodlust. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's an argument that Alton is always carrying that rage and hatred, so maybe his eyes are always red. But I don't know. It just feels, like, a little too convenient. And I hope – I haven't read the other books, but I'm really excited to. And I have a feeling that they're going to explore that a little bit more because I don't know how Rin could be a Spearly. Okay. But at the end, doesn't Katai say, your eyes are red? Or somebody points out to her at the end of the book that her eyes are red. Yes. However, I remember when she met Alton for the first time up close in the garden, his eyes were not red. And she was like, oh, I thought they were crimson, but they're not. So I don't know if Rin is Spearly because of what you were saying, Tilly, of like, you know, someone just tells her that. So like, how do we know? There's no real proof. But... I don't think the crimson eyes have anything to do with being a Spearly. I think it's just mm. because he is so engulfed with rage and hatred. And the phoenix, he says, I can't turn it off. Like, it's always in me. The god, the phoenix god yeah, is always. Yeah, it's like the Hulk. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 So, the secret is I'm always angry. So, you won't yeah. like him when he's angry. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I'm like, I don't know if she's a Spearly, but I don't think Spearly people have crimson eyes. And I also thought okay, there was a moment in the beginning where – she even said, like, oh, we were always taught that Spearleys looked like this, but Alton doesn't look like that, right? Because there was, like, a lot right. of Right, so there's so much stuff. propaganda. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Well, she also, at the beginning, 
I don't know if this is necessarily an argument about whether she is Spearly or not, but they do talk a lot about the begin at the beginning when she gets to Sinegard about how dark her skin is. It seems mm-hmm. to be much darker than everyone else's, even when she was in Dakani. Mm-hmm. And when she sees Alton for the first time, she says his skin was even, or I guess it's not her talking, but the narrator says that Alton's skin was even darker than Rin's. Mm-hmm. But that made me kind of think, oh, maybe when it gets later into the book, maybe they are both spearly mm-hmm. because they seem to really emphasize that kind of point and then point out Alton's skin color as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I don't, I mean, I think at this point, I think she's spearly, but yeah. I don't have a preference yeah, same. either way. Yeah. I'm like, who knows? I was in a way kind of hoping that I remember hoping like, I hope she's not spearly because I think that's just kind of a, a tired trope of being like, surprise, you're actually the thing that we thought was extinct. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in, in a lot of fantasy novels specifically, and it's not a bad trope. It's, I think it's just a little overdone, but I guess it made sense in this one. And especially with that scene where uh, she and Alton are visiting their ancestors. Now, the more I think about it, the more I, I don't think she would have been able to access that um, kind of collective memory if she hadn't been a part of but the community. But brought right. her there. She did. That's true. You know what I mean? That's true. I still have questions. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like this book was the perfect balance of there were a lot of loose ends still so that I'm like excited to read more. But also there were so many things that were kind of resolved or that she learned about in this one. So it still felt like a complete story. And then there's still questions that I have, but I'm not like mad about them. I'm excited to delve into mm-hmm. them. I don't know. What do yeah. you think? One thing I I think about or have thought about, I guess, with this and her being spearly or not, mm-hmm. I understand that kind of trope of being like, you, this race was extinct, but actually you're still here. I think that makes it really interesting because she can't have kids. Mm-hmm. I don't think Alton is right. really dead. No. So if yeah, he, I don't think so. When he comes back and they're like, oh, we have this opportunity to repopulate with spear like spearly descendants mm-hmm. but they don't actually have that opportunity so i think that would actually be a really good trope to go with in this situation true because it is like you are like nearly there but you're never going to grasp that thing that you want because she's not going to be able to have children mm-hmm. well and maybe there's going to be like someone else that they discover because they thought that alton was the only yeah. one because he was being right. experimented on and how did Rin survive? We don't know. Maybe there are more of them. And she I found that you, underground though. tunnel yeah. that yep. in in Spear. So maybe people are hiding underground. <gasps> holes. I don't know. <laughs> Remember you brought up holes? I'm so excited to read more. I, um... Oh, shoot. I had something to say. I, oh, I agree with you that Alton, I don't think, is dead. I also don't think Neja okay. is dead. Because we just saw the Federation soldiers, like, dragging him away through the mist. We didn't see him, like, you know, dead. And, yeah, maybe he's, like, a prisoner now. Well, in the book, too, Um, who was it? Was it Enko? Enro? The, the There's Enro and Enki, Enki, who were both medics, which I found very confusing. <laughs> Enki, the medic with the psych. Um, he yes. He was, like... I think he's a shaman because he healed so quickly. And she was like, what? Yeah. He's not a shaman, right? And how? Yeah, he's combat dude. Yeah. He's jock. And I yeah. so, oh my God. Wow, what a roller coaster because I hated him at the beginning. And then I Me was too. Like, so but then you really grow to feel for him. And I was like, no, yeah. that's the character that I mentioned in the beginning where I was like, he can't be dead. He can't be dead. Because I'm like, there's no way. Yeah. 
Oh my god! And when I thought Katai died, and then the oh, right. when she's calling for him, and the rubble rubble of Golan Nice, and then it's like after you know what felt like days of calling, she heard her name in return, and I was like oh, weeping. He's alive! He made it. Oh I know. Oh my gosh! With uh, with Neja, I thought that it was so good that she wrote his character to be super redeemable. Mm-hmm. Because yes. you see him as the spoiled brat, like, teenager at the beginning. But you mm-hmm. really do understand with this book. I mean, people say this all the time in real life. You know, like, people change. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to feel sympathy for people changing in books, I find. Because if people mm-hmm. are not written well in the change, then it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But even through the beginning, I knew deep down in my heart of hearts that Neja would be good in the end. Really? So it, yeah, I really felt that. I was like, there's something more happening here than just this like petty rivalry. They're spending oh. too much time focusing on this for this to just be a throwaway plot point. And I did like that he had the opportunity to say himself to Rin. Like, I apologize. Yeah. I was an idiot. You made me feel self-conscious. Like, he was able to express, like, emotionally how she made him feel and then, like, heal from it. (laughs) We sure do. Here at BYOB, we stand emotional maturity. It's hard to find these days. Sure is. Oh, my God. Well, I – that's so interesting because I could not – guess or foresee anything in this book and at the very beginning i was just like wow this freaking asshole so when they were fighting at the beginning together and then we thought he died by like being stabbed by the um the The general general. oh yeah that i thought was the end of his story and i was like oh my god that's so upsetting because they were like coming together for the common good and you know but then he didn't die and i was like oh there's more to this. Is he going to be nice? Is he still going to be an idiot? Is he going to, you know? Mm-hmm. I did not call that so well. Good for you, Nikki. I did not. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, okay, I found a lot of the scenes are very cinematic. Maybe yes. it's just because I have like an overactive imagination. But that scene in particular with the general, I actually wanted to read it because I was like, wow, I could picture this. I got shivers even just like typing it out. I was like, huh. okay, so. This has been from page 246, so it's when Sinegard is under siege by the Muganese. When Rin realized she hadn't been cut in half or trampled to death, she opened her eyes. What the fuck, Nisha said. Jung stood before them, his white hair hanging still in the air as if he had been struck by lightning. His feet did not touch the ground. Both his arms were flung out, blocking the tremendous force of the general's halberd with his own iron staff. And I was just like... Yeah, it's like I remember cheering out loud because I was so excited that Jung had been kind of like out of the picture. And then Neja and Rin were really like resigned to, okay, this is how we die. This ginormous general is just going to like slice us in half. And there he was out of nowhere opening up his like extreme shamanic powers. I I love it. You know what it made me think of? Um, What? Kida in Atlantis, the Lost Empire, when they go underground and they see all of the god statues kind of floating Mm -hmm. over that lake and she her crystal gets called and she like steps out and walks on the water and then lifts up into it oh such an epic scene i watched that recently it really holds up i know right (laughs) okay i want to go near the beginning of the book for a bit because wow there's Mm -hmm. so much that happens Mm -hmm. um okay first off (laughs) this is definitely not the same so you know take this with a grain of salt um (laughs) or a poppy seed (laughs) don't (laughs) 
when I was a kid, I one walked- poppy seed won't hurt you. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but you will not be able to pass a drug test if you had a poppy yes. seed bagel. Truth. But when I was a kid, I wanted to be Jackie Chan, not a martial artist. I wanted to be Jackie Chan. Okay. So that's why I'm like, this is related, but definitely not the same. But so the training <laughs> montage at the school, I was like, oh my God. Oh yeah. This is all my like wildest dreams come true. I'm enjoying this so much. Like I freaking loved it. And then the part where she gets her period for the first and only time. <gasps> oh yes. my yeah. God. I, my grandma, she had a similar experience where like when she had her first period, she thought she was dying. Because no one taught yeah. her anything, and she went home from school, and her mom was like, oh, my God, you know, and, like, fixed her up, whatever. Um, so I thought that was kind of, like, fun, but also so sad, because it's like, you know, you don't even know how your own body works, because no one was telling you with these things. And then she's like, fuck this shit, I don't want to bleed every month, which, I mean, like, I can relate. But holy crap, then she's like, I'm just going to take it out. I'm just going to drink a little potion and kill my literally burn my uterus yeah. yeah so powerful and i love that scene because it, it's so indicative of who rin is as a character right she's like no i will not allow this disruption i do not want this to be uh, distracting me in my studies i don't want it i'm having it and the the doctors don't stop her they're just like great i think that's a good idea i've been wondering why people haven't been doing this yeah and if that had happened in today's society it well first of all it wouldn't because doctors would convince you like well what if you want to have kids eventually they just won't do it and so i thought that was so powerful of rin and really made me admire her i actually i wanted to read a bit of that too because uh she talks about like she was miserable but the choice was hers Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I also thought, like, you know, from a feminist standpoint, it's like, wow, good for you. But I was also horrified for her. Like, not not because, oh, she can't have kids anymore. Like, no, 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 that's fine. Like, you do you. But I just thought, how horrifying is that? Like, here's a little potion. Drink it on down. Stay in bed for a couple days. Go through excruciating pain. And then never speak of it again. You know? That's just- I definitely I found. No, you go. Oh, I just found the quote so we can finish this little bit. Um, It was a testament, perhaps, to the lack of sexual education in Takani that Rin didn't learn about menstruation until that morning. Over the next 15 minutes, the physician's assistant explained in detail the changes going on in Rin's body, pointing to various places on the diagram and making some very vivid gestures with her hand. So you're not dying, sweetheart. Your body is just shedding your uterine lining. Rin's jaw had been hanging open for a solid minute. What the fuck? <laughs> Made me laugh out loud because I'm like, yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene, I didn't, I wasn't horrified by it. And I was, I had like a mixture of feelings on one hand. I was really proud. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, I was kind of like, when you're 14, you don't know anything about what you want in life. And what if you do regret, not just that decision, but like any decision, what if you do something that's like so permanent and then later in life you're like, wow, I was 14 and I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. So it really did that part specifically because we all have uteruses and deal with them. That part to me was the most realistic or not realistic, but the thing that I could relate to the most in terms of what decisions are going to impact you forever. Mm -hmm. So 
in that I was like, yeah, you do what you want. And then at the same time, I was like, but what if? (laughs) I know, but that's just the type of person that she becomes, right? Mm -hmm. She's so like, bottom line, like the, the, uh, the ends justify the means. That's 100% who she is. She does not think. And it's such a, it feels like foreshadowing in a way to the end of the book when she, you know, has this chance to basically commit genocide to finish a war and basically act just as the Muganese did with kind of treating the Nikara as as animals rather than people. Mm -hmm. She does the exact same thing, but she doesn't have a problem with it. She just wants the revenge at all costs. Yeah. And I think that's why I was so like horrified by her taking that potion because for me, it's like, yeah, if you don't want to have kids, good on you but it's just like the pain you're putting yourself through and you're so young and like you don't know if you're gonna have complications because it's just like a little bottle you don't know what's in it you know like i was just like oh my god you know and then with the friggin genocide she's like i did what i had to do i'm like what you know and that's why when we were talking about spearlies earlier i don't think that they're the only two spearlies because you know, they they said at the end that there's still Muganese people, but they're on the continent. They're not on the island. Right. So <clears throat> there must be still Spearleys out there. <sighs> well, it also just it makes, makes me, me makes me think about how did she become a child of war? What were her parents like? Where were they? Did they leave her somewhere mm-hmm. and someone found her? Or were they killed and someone found her? Did they think we're going to go into hiding and we're going to leave her so that she can live a life and not know anything about any of this Mm -hmm. and try to be normal? I'm hoping in the second book they delve into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think for the story to have any kind of completion, they are going to have to talk about that at some point. Because if she, well, whether she is or isn't Spearly, they're going to have to find that out through some kind of like... Mm -hmm heritage or meeting somebody who knew somebody who knew her parents or something like that yeah i have a crazy theory that i don't think will great be true, let's hear it <laughs> what if the empress is rin's mother because she every time she sees Whoa. her she has this like huge pull and connection to her that's true and the empress says at one point like i know who you are yeah but I thought you were dead. Or, like, I thought we burned you. She says something really curious to her yeah. when she, the Empress first sees her. Yeah, or, like, is she Tears' daughter? I don't know. Mm. Mm. I have questions. Because why I don't... when? Why now? Why this sperm? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, what, I don't... like, it's hard? <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I'm like, is this a wild theory? Probably. People who, if you've read the full trilogy, you're probably like, wow. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. But we haven't, yeah. so we're allowed to speculate. Yeah. I don't think that she's Dodgy's daughter, because if she was, then I think that she would have kept her. But would she? If she knew that she was going to have powers, I think so, because she wanted to use everybody else. So who better to use than your own child? Because they will have undying devotion towards you mm-hmm. as their parent in most cases. So I don't. I really don't think that she's Dodgy's daughter mm-hmm. at all. I think there's going to be probably a lot of um, more 
truths uncovered about that whole mythical trifecta with the empress or the em- uh, yeah the empress but also known as the vipress and the warrior and the gatekeeper because it's revealed near the end that jung is actually the gatekeeper this kind yeah. of like much older than we had thought he was like almost like mythical creature and then he just kind of disappears again he gets he mirrors himself into chulu Kurik and um kind of hides away but i think there's got to be more to it like we've got to find out what's going on with the vipress there's all these questions that i'm excited to have answered in the next two books how did he become the gatekeeper like where where did he he exist like what time did he exist in before he went to chulu Kurik? how did that happen like why did How they did let he... him just teach at Synagard? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, why did he just go into Synagard and become uh, the lore master? There are just so many freaking questions. I guess you could say that he went there to try to dissuade people like he did mm-hmm. with Rin. Mm-hmm. He's trying or to he protect. To. <laughs> He's trying to be the gatekeeper. Yeah. That's literally right. would be his job to keep track of who comes and goes from mm-hmm. Kulu Charik. Chulu Karik. Wow, wow. You got it. Like, so I think that that makes the most sense. And even if that is what he was doing, there's just like so much in that to be like, yeah. why, how, when, where, mm-hmm. who else? Yeah. Who was the gatekeeper before him? I just, I want to know everything. Yeah, because he also dissuaded a bunch of members of the psych. From, you know, right. completing the lore training. Because um, I think they mentioned, like, they banished one of the psych members to the desert. And they banished someone else and, like, all sorts of stuff. But, like, also, how dare they treat him like some fool at the academy? Because I'm like, do you even know the power he possesses? They must not have known. But the masters, yeah. they don't know? That's crazy to me. I guess they can't have known. Because, I, I mean, a lot of the other characters, like the Empress or someone else talks about, like, his seal is breaking. So in my mind, Jiang was almost like a different kind of person who was, like, locked down without the access to his powers or something. So maybe, or maybe he had, like, amnesia. Like, maybe there was something, there seems like there was something going on there where he wasn't quite the gatekeeper for a while. But then now he's back. But then he he kind of, like, sealed himself away again. So I don't know. I have questions. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder because they they were saying when you're in Chulu Kurik, you can't access your powers. Mm-hmm. I yeah. wonder if that was like he was there so long that when he got out, he didn't know how anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why he spent so much time meditating and going up to the mountain and ingesting was coffee afraid. seeds. Yeah, there's- that was what it felt like to me that he was like not a coward, but that he was um, afraid of the powers that he could unleash, mm-hmm. and that's why he preached all this caution to Rin and to other characters was to try and like you don't know what you're dealing with, like you can't you can't comprehend the the like the scope of of the power that you're requesting. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there would not be a book if Rin did not disobey him or go against what he was saying but i really felt like this whole roller coaster with her throughout the whole book i would at one part i was like yes that's right and then when she talks with alton and he's like no our powers are meant to be used 
we're meant to be this vessel for the phoenix and stuff. And she goes, no, you're right. And I'm like, yeah, Alton's right. And then <laughs> and then towards the end when Zhang's like, don't you see what destruction this is causing? This is exactly what I warned against. And I was like, yeah, Zhang's right. God, Rin, yeah. you suck. I have the same. Well, and it's because yeah. she was learning too, right? Like her... Uh, moral compass was shifting based on who she talked to and when she learned more about like the genocide at spear you know at first it was taught to her as just being like it was a, a terrible accident that happened and then the more she thought about it the more she was like but strategically it seems like it would have had to be uh, a strategy that like commit this genocide sacrifice this island so that we don't have to worry about them and then the more she uncovers the more it becomes real to her and it's almost like she loses faith in the idea of the empire as she's learned it because so much of what she learned were lies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i w i remember reading the part near the very end where um she finds out what kara did kara mm -hmm. mm -hmm. she finds out what kara did with the dam and she's like oh, yeah. oh my god that's basically the strategy i proposed in class and Master right. Irja was like, you can't do that. Like, do you know the repercussions? And when he laid it out, she felt almost shameful for suggesting it. But she was like, mm -hmm. well, in theory, it would work. But I guess, yeah, you can't do that. But, you know, I guess I passed the purpose of this quiz, you know, or this question. But then when it happens in real life, at the very end, she was like, oh, my God. So I feel like she only really feels guilt or has a conscience when she's shamed because she's always looking for approval from the masters or from alton yeah. you know which is like <sighs> that's when you see her age you know because she is very young. it's true yeah well and and don't they say too that shame is a landfill emotion like it's a sort mm -hmm. of thing that you you wouldn't ha you don't have naturally like you're not born yeah. with the idea of shame you you just exist as a child until someone tells you you should feel bad about yourself for something mm -hmm. and then that's where it comes from like it's not a natural feeling so it makes sense in a way that Rin would kind of have all these ideas and be like, of course, that's the right way to do it. And then when someone tells her no, then she has to be like, oh, well, maybe what I how the way I'm perceiving the world isn't correct. And then she gets confused. Mm -hmm. To be fair, the way she perceives the world is not correct. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there because yeah. the from the very beginning, while I, I love me a morally gray character and I did love Rin, Almost every decision she made, I was like, I'm sorry, girl, I cannot get behind you on this. Like, <laughs> no, mm, I can see so many other ways to go about this situation, and none of them are that. So, right. so I really enjoyed it because I felt like I was kind of in a battle with, with her the whole time. But it was a fun battle. Yeah. It wasn't like yeah. um, Jude and the Cruel Prince where I was just like, wow, you suck oh, yeah, the whole yeah. time. <laughs> oh, my God. Being like, what the hell are you doing? Oh, my God. That was like one of our first episodes. And this is our last oh, throwback. Oh. Potentially. Wow. But <laughs> should we... Should we talk about Alton? Because yes. Nikki, yes! you had very positive reaction the last time we said his name. I love Alton. The definition of a tortured hero. I, yeah. I don't know. Like, fuels my soul. I went back and forth. I, like, really liked him mm. at first, and then I really hated him, and then I felt sorry for him. And now I yeah. don't know what to feel. <laughs> I felt sorry for him the whole time. He was... Mm -hmm. We've all seen documentaries about famous people, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they never make you <laughs> okay. feel good. Yeah. Right. They only ever make you feel really sad for them. Right. And it's kind of the same with Alton. All of these people are like, oh my God, Alton's so great. But Alton lives in this world by himself because everybody yes. thinks he's so great. Yeah. And he's the last survivor. Which is so lonely and so mm-hmm. heartbreaking. And you wouldn't, he wouldn't have any real friends. You realize that he does. Like, I mean, I think that his comrades in the end are in the psych are people who he like cares about and they care about him. But I don't know if that those relationships would be a thing if the psych didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But I felt bad for him the whole time. And even during the... There were some parts that were kind of scary when he was... Unhinged. Not mentoring her. When he was her commander. Like coaching her. Yeah. Yeah. And the things that he was doing to her to try to make her open her mind up to these other possibilities... The kind of like verbal abuse he hits her mm-hmm. at one point, I think. Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. of those things are terrifying and they're awful. But with the way that he grew up and the things that were happening to him and how desperate he was to get to this end goal, I can see exactly why he would um, put into motion those tactics to get what he needed to get out of people. Mm-hmm. Right. His motivations were clear the whole way. Yeah. So I love him. Yeah. I liked him too. And I, I liked that while there were kind of hints that Rin was in love with him or that she was obsessed with him or infatuated with him, it never really um, blossomed into anything more, which I was happy about because um, that happens a lot. And while I do love a good love story, it didn't feel like it had a place in this story. And so I'm glad that it didn't go that way. I think there was a moment right before he, um, you know, sacrifices himself so for she can swim across to Spear, where he leans toward her and she, her narration is like, I thought for a bizarre moment that he would kiss me, yeah. but he didn't. In fact, he, instead he like um, pressed his forehead to hers, which is more intimate in a way. And I felt like they had a deeper connection than just like, like a, an attraction or an infatuation. Yeah. So I liked that. Yeah. And I don't know how old he is. Um, I think he's a few years older yeah, than her. He was and how old is she at the end of the book? She starts off at 14. At least a year passes in Sinegard. Oh, several or years. Several? I think she's 19 at the end. That's, what I, that's okay. what I figured, too. She was 19. So if he was in the fifth year of Sinegard and she was in her first year, he would be like... And she was 16 when she got into Sinegard. Yeah. Oh, right, said, right. I think she spent two years studying. So he'd be like 24, 25 at the end of the book? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, because I was like... I mean, also, I probably missed some of that if they talked about ages because two times speed. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Things just get muddled together sometimes. Yeah. Um, But okay, yeah, because I think I'm definitely not against them becoming something more in later books. But I think with this book, there was so many other things happening that I think it would have just been like really unnecessary Mm -hmm. and such a trope to be like, I'm finally going to kiss you right before I die. Like grow up. It's like freaking Kylo Ren all over again. Okay. Don't even, you know what though? If that had happened, we would have loved it. Yeah. Don't get, (laughs) yeah, I would have. I, okay. (laughs) If Rin had to be with someone, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, yes, not all of them. (laughs) No, I know what you mean. Yeah, and I said to Nikki the other day, I was like, I hope they don't get together, like, in Asia, because I was like, I'm not here for that. It's not the kind of book. But if there had to be, I think it has to be them. Not Alton, because there's too much of a mentorship kind of relationship and, like, idolatry 
where I don't <clears> think <throat> that would I, w- I don't know. I wouldn't like that. We're all we're all saying he's coming back, right? Like this is it. for like us. It. It's not like an if. It's like we're like when he comes back. We don't know when he's coming back. So by the time he comes back, we don't know how many years are going to have passed. Maybe they're going to be at the same level at this point. Maybe their relationship will be completely different. Maybe he won't remember her. I don't know. Like, there's so many different things happening. But I I think that Neja is going to become this, like, brother to her. And this like this like warrior brother like like companion, not a I love interest. Know. I can I see it going both ways because with Alton, obviously they're so similar, where especially if they share this like ancestry, they've got all that shared kind of collective generational trauma and the connection to the Phoenix and all that. Of course, there's hints that Neja is also a shaman, so may- or shaman. So maybe there's some of that as well. But Neja and Rin got along so badly at the beginning because they were different. And that can create a good romantic relationship, whereas mm-hmm. being too similar can sometimes be bad. So I don't know. It could really go both ways for also, me. Also, Rin shares her cultural background potentially with Alton because we don't know for sure yet, right? Maybe they're brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Ew. Maybe. That would be so. Well, she doesn't really talk about being in love with him. Yeah. She talks or, about loving him. But I'm just or threesome. No, I'm just putting it out there <laughs> into the universe. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I just think you know, even if she were Spurly, she wasn't there. She doesn't like remember right. her life there. So it's not like, oh, you're not really Spurly, you know. But it's just like they have different experiences. So I don't know. True. Even though they do connect over certain things in the book, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I I don't think. I also kind of me. wondered if Alton and Chagun, Chagun, Chagun. How do you say his name? Uh, the seer. I kind of thought they had like a vibe they, going. Oh like maybe yeah, they were because in love. he was like so upset yeah. when Alton died, and somebody says something. He's kind of alluding known. to the fact that he was in love with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were having those kind of, um, that discussion when Rin was, like, hiding, Mm -hmm. listening to them. And Chagan grabs Alton, and he's, like, holding him down Mm -hmm. in front of him, and he's yelling at him, and Alton doesn't do anything to stop it. And I'm like, I love that. Yeah, I was like, they're totally together. I I really don't care who Rin ends up with. I just care who Alton ends up with. That's Honestly, I don't really think Rin deserves to be in a happy relationship. I'll be kind of surprised if she even survives the end of the trilogy, to be honest. Because it feels like her path is so doomed. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she's making so many of the wrong choices. But I don't know. Maybe she'll be redeemed too. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I haven't read the other two books, so it would be really interesting to see this book turn into we're actually following the villain the whole time, mm-hmm. and we're just seeing that origin story that you don't get for so many mm-hmm. villains. You know, from how like the from the very beginning, she's like, I just want power, and I'm mm-hmm. like, that's a really messed up red flag red flag yeah (laughs) i have a tiny little quote that fits this whole conversation of alton and now what we're getting into with rin and like is she the villain let's hear it it's super tiny it's on page 233 and who says it rin says this actually ho ho rin says this to katai 
She says, what does it matter? They're coming and we're staying. And at the end of the day, whoever is alive is the side that wins. War doesn't determine who's right. War determines who remains. So I thought that was quite apropos <laughs> to our discussion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, I mean, for the whole book too, you know, like it's, yeah. if I had to describe the book in one sentence, I would use that quote because wow, there is just, Oh my God, so much. But like, I do think if they made this into a visual adaptation, it Oh I don't God. think it could be a movie because there's so much. You'd have there's to do too much. TV I think show. it would have to be a series. Yeah. Who did um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? I'm looking. Oh, Ang Lee, I think. Oh, yes. Okay. That movie was beautiful. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I think, like, if he did this, holy crap. Like, <laughs> it's... <laughs> or, oh my God, because I just watched In the Heights, the director... <laughs> John M. Chu. Yes. I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, that would be great. Oh my god, yeah. Oh. I'm hoping that through the trilogy, maybe Rin will learn, or maybe, maybe someone will put out Rin's flame. You know what I mean? Like maybe someone will mm. sacrifice her. Like she was thinking about, would I be able to kill Alton? You know. This mm-hmm. is just me thinking from, like, a storytelling um, structural point of view. Like, what is the end? Is there any hope? Does yeah. anyone, like, help Rin or teach Rin or, you know, stop her for the greater good? I don't know, right? Oh, I don't know either. I could see it happening either. Like I said before, like I could see that she doesn't survive the trilogy, but I could also see that she gets redemption because I think there's a part of her that has um, passion for her country Mm -hmm. and compassion for her um, like compatriots. So I think there's a part of her that could be saved, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what it would take to get there. Right? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. This book. Why did you do this to It's us? so good. I think I'm going to start the second one tonight. <gasps> See, I want to, but I don't have it. And I want to own it. I don't want the ebook. I don't want to buy the ebook. I want the physical book. And I also need a break. I need some, like, rom-com silliness. Yeah. Because my brain is like, oh my god. I just want more. <laughs> I just want oh, more and more and more. Oh, that was so good. Should we do some favorite quotes? Yeah. Sure. My first one is basically right at the very beginning of the book. It's maybe like 25 pages in. And um, this is right after Rin's auntie tells her that she's going to get married. And Rin is really upset. And um, this is a quote. Auntie Fong's lip curled in amusement. The first night is the worst. I'll give you that. Keep a wad of cotton in your mouth so you don't bite your tongue. Do not cry out unless he wants you to. Keep your head down and do as he says. Become his mute little household slave until he trusts you. But once he does, you start plying him with opium. Just a little bit at first, though. I doubt he's never smoked before. Then you give him more and more every day. Do it at night, right after he's finished with you, so he always associates it with pleasure and power. Give him more and more until he is fully dependent on it and on you. Let it destroy his body and mind. You'll be more or less married to a breathing corpse, yes, but you will have his riches, his estates, and his power. 
Auntie Fong tilted her head. Then will it hurt you so much to share his bed? And I'm like, well, no wow. wonder Rin's like, I just want power. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's that's the role model she had. Yeah, exactly. Honestly. Woof. Oh but God. at the same time, I was kind of like, well, good for you. That's not the worst plan. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Auntie has a point. <laughs> but also- yeah, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know what it was about that, but I think maybe the way the narrator said it or something, but or the the reader, the audiobook reader uh said it, but I was just like, wow, that's such a powerful thing to say to somebody. There was no beating around the bush there. She just went right at it. She's like, You you're gonna get married to him, you're gonna make him trust you, and then you're gonna kill him slowly and take all his money. And I just think like that. in that same section, too, um, there's, like, a Auntie Fong also looks in the other room, and that's where her husband was, like, sitting on the couch, like, kind of half uh, half asleep, because she had obviously been doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was such clever piece of story storytelling. <laughs> yeah. My second quote is really close to the end of the book, and it kind of has to do with what we were just talking about. They surrendered. She wanted to scream at her disappeared enemy. They dropped their weapons. They posed no threat to you. Why did you have to do this? A rational explanation eluded her. Because the answer could not be rational. It was not founded in military strategy. It was not because of a shortage of food rations or because of the risk of insurgency or backlash. It was simply what happened when one race decided the other was insignificant. The Federation mm-hmm. had massacred Golan Nice for the simple reason that they did not think the Nikara as human. And if your opponent was not human, if your opponent was a cockroach, what did it matter how many of them you killed? What was the difference between crushing an ant and setting an anthill on fire? Why shouldn't you pull wings off insects for your own enjoyment? The bug might feel pain, but what did that matter to you? And I was yeah. like, it just, that made me more upset than anything that was actually happening in the book because that's what people are like Mm -hmm. yep in real life you see it all the time yeah and then it made me so much more upset when rin took that exact thing and applied that to herself Mm -hmm. to allow her to like give herself permission to basically commit genocide all over again Mm mm-hmm yeah, because she lacks that self-awareness to, I mean, even at the end, she doesn't think that she's done anything wrong. It takes Katai telling her, like, you've done the same thing. And then she's like, well, you, well no, hang on a second. I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. And then even when she does realize that, yes, I've done the same thing, she's like, good, that's what they deserved. Like, there's something wrong in the way she sees things. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. It's so tough. <laughs> well, I have a fun one. Yay. <laughs> And then the intense one as well. So it's when um, Jiang first starts teaching Ren, and he takes her down to the village and uh, gives her this pig from this uh, widow lady. Holes. So she can- yeah. It's fucking holes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he says basically that this pig who I've named Sun Tzu has to run up and down the mountain so that he can drink the clear mountain water. And then the widow literally says, Sun Tzu could drink sewage water and be fine. You're just making things up for this training exercise. And Jiang says, can we just do it like we rehearsed? (laughs) (laughs) 
uh, it was the first time Rin had seen anyone actually get to him. You're killing the mood. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was so funny. And I, Rami made me really um, fall in love with his character yeah. as just being this like really eccentric teacher and just being like, come on, everybody play nice. I have this great rehearsal set out and we're just going to do it this way. And I mean, she really did learn from him, even though his uh, methods were unconventional. So he had something going on, even though, I mean, geniuses are often a little bit funny to the eye of the beholder because their brains work in different ways. And that's what it felt like with Jiang. So I really loved him. <laughs> he also was like, um, master, was it master June? the combat yeah master june is teaching you how to fight but i'm teaching you how to understand the universe and then he like hits his head on a branch yeah <laughs> oh, this like it's so funny every all the parts with jung really made me think of the karate kid um mm. it's a very similar storyline i am gonna go here because i want to know how to fight well, I'm going to teach you how not to fight, but I'm, I want to fight anyway. And at the end, they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have fought. Oh, <laughs> maybe my teacher was wise. Wax I don't on, know. Wax off. Why am I painting? Why am I waxing? Oh, I'm learning. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Would you see when she fucking ruins her classmates in that yes. trial? Oh, Get yeah. it. Yeah, I was happy about that. Kelly, why don't you read us a quote? Sure. Okay, so I have one. It's in part one where she's still in training mode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's talking to Zhang about... Um, he's quizzing her on, like, religion and gods. And she's like, I don't know what to believe and, you know, all that jazz. And she says, this isn't martial arts. It's, it's what, he pressed. It's supernatural. He looked smug. Supernatural is a word for anything that doesn't fit your present understanding of the world. I need you to dis- I need you to suspend your disbelief. I need you to simply accept that these things are possible. I'm supposed to take it as true that you're a god? Don't be silly. I'm not a god, he said. I'm a mortal who has woken up and there is power in awareness. I just thought that was super cool because it leads yeah. into all the other things they go into of like the philosophy and spirituality of like being a shaman. I just thought that was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had a quote that kind of went along with that as well. I think it's probably later in the same chapter, maybe, where Zhang is, is starting to teach her the the, the real, uh, the combat techniques and, and you know, the, of the monasteries that the martial arts kind of began as like, the monks learning how to defend themselves. It was all about dispersing the key and all that. So <coughs> Jung says, once there are monasteries upon monasteries, then the Red Emperor in his quest for unification came and burned them down. Shamans lost their power. The monks, the ones with real power anyhow, died or disappeared. Where are they now? Hidden, he said, forgotten. In recent history, only the nomadic clans of the hinterlands and the tribes of Spear had anyone who could commune with the gods. This is no coincidence. The national quest to modernize and mobilize entails a faith in one's ability to control world order, and when that happens, you lose your connection with the gods. When man begins to think that he is responsible for writing the script of the world, he forgets the forces that dream up our reality. Once this academy was a monastery, now it is a military training ground. You'll find the same pattern has repeated itself in all the great powers of this world that have entered a so-called civilized age. Mugen doesn't have shamans. Hesperia doesn't have shamans. They worship men who they believe are gods, not gods themselves. Mm-hmm. 
So I just thought this was such a good commentary on like the idea of traditional versus like modernizing and how you actually lose so much when you discard um, traditional practices or more spiritual yeah, practices. And Exactly. Yeah, I thought this was a really, a really powerful section of the book. Was that your second quote or just based off of mine? It was. <gasps> it was. Yeah, we we're synchronized. <laughs> I really want to read this because it's a little bit longer, but I think it is just like so huge for the whole book. It's near the very end. It's page 501, 502. And it's when the phoenix is speaking to Rin. Oh, this part. Okay. So... The phoenix says, What I want. The gods do not want anything. The gods merely exist. We cannot help what we are. We are pure essence, pure element. You humans inflict everything on yourselves and then blame us afterward. Every calamity has been man-made. We do not force you to do anything. We have only ever helped. This is my destiny, Rin said with conviction. I'm the last Spearly. I have to do this. It is written. Nothing is written, said the phoenix. You humans always think you're destined for things, for tragedy, or for greatness. Destiny is a myth. Destiny is the only myth. The gods choose nothing. You chose. You chose to take the exam. You chose to come to Synagard. You chose to pledge lore. You chose to study the paths of the gods. And you chose to follow your commander's demands over your master's warnings. At every critical juncture, you were given an option. You were given a way out. Yet you picked precisely the roads that led you here. You are at this temple, kneeling before me, only because you wanted to be. And you know that should you give the command, I will call something terrible. I will wreak a disaster to destroy the island of Mugen completely, as thoroughly as Spear was destroyed. By your choice, many will die. I mean, it's very much what the phoenix is talking about about you know you made all these choices like it's not predestined the world is always changing i mean that's what we heard from the talu i think as well yeah. like when i'm casting the hexagrams it's not telling the future it's telling the forces that are at play mm -hmm. and people have the um ability and the um what's the word the agency to make a choice and that can tip the scales in whichever favor mm -hmm. Yeah, it really made me think of um, reading tarot. Yes. And a lot mm. of people who don't understand tarot or have never read tarot think that it's calling upon some spirit or other divine entity to tell you what you should be doing. But really, tarot is for the person to read however they see fit at that time in their life. So when you see the cards and you have someone interpret them for you or you're able to interpret them for yourself, you really see that all of these things are just choices from the point you're at right now. Choices that you will make that will take you in one direction or the other. And I just really loved this section because that really solidified all of that. And I was like, yes, mm -hmm. this is... This is something that I think about all the time mm -hmm. is why why are things happening and really no, nothing is happening to you. Yeah. Everything right. is happening because of things you are doing. Yeah. You have control over how you react to things. How you perceive Other things. people are not making decisions for you. And you can say, oh, this wouldn't have happened if this person wouldn't have done this. I think, yes, there are certain situations where other people do impact what, what is going on, <laughs> but you always have... 
the ability to decide you are not going to do something or you are going to do something else. Mm -hmm. And there's Mm -hmm. nobody else other than yourself that can force what you need to do. Yeah. Like a lot of people think of fate and they think, oh, well, I'm just, you know, a victim to my own fate or I have no control or whatever. But I like this perspective because... No, you really do have control over your own reality and what is happening to you and what you're doing. So, love it. I feel like we had a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, you're in a drive you're in the driver's seat. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this final episode of season 1 of the BYOB podcast. If you enjoyed this and want to hear more from us, you can head over to our social media accounts to keep up to date on all things BYOB. We also have a coffee page if you're interested in supporting us. The link will be in the episode notes. We'll be taking a break to work on season two, and you can expect a whole new list of books that we'll be discussing in future episodes. Who knows, you might even get some surprise bonus episodes in the meantime, and you can always go back and listen to our backlist of other great episodes. See you next time, and until then, keep on drinking in great stories. Cheers! Cheers.